Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Good evening, church. I would invite everyone to please turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. So we'll read our theme verse in a moment. But as I already heard whispers from the crowd, Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, in those chapters, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ gives his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to give us nice platitudes. In the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus Christ does, what he accomplishes, is he exposes the illness, he exposes the sickness within our own hearts. And that therein exposes our desperate and utter need for God's righteousness. That's the broad view of Matthew 5 through 7 overall. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus emphasizes private righteousness and not public pretending. He speaks about giving to the poor and tells his disciples how to pray. And then in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, Jesus says something that's disruptive. He says something that's earth-shattering. He says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This is a loaded verse. What Jesus literally says here is that if we do not forgive someone, God will not forgive us. Do we understand what is at stake? Because if God doesn't forgive us, we are now condemned. We are not pardoned. And the end result of God not forgiving us is we spend eternity in hell forever. Much is at stake. But we have to begin wrestling with Jesus' words here with the overall theme or the overall narrative of the Bible because we're not going to weaponize Scripture against Scripture. We have to make sense of Christ's words. We have to make sense of the reality that God sent His Son to die on a cross so that He could justly forgive us. So what is Jesus actually saying here? How do we make sense of Christ's words in the context of the Bible overall? Such as verses like Colossians 2, 13 to 15, where the Apostle Paul writes, 
when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So here's our question, church. How do we reconcile the part with the whole? How do we reconcile what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14 to 15 with what the Bible says overall? How do we reconcile it with the rest of the canon of scripture? Now before we move on, let's make sure we have our terms clearly defined. Jesus says, for if you forgive, what does this word forgive actually mean? It comes from two words in Greek, apohimeni, which means away from and send. So what is forgiveness? Properly speaking, it means to send away, to release to remit. In plain language, forgiveness speaks to when a person sends away bitterness, when they release vengeance or taking their own vengeance, they release vengeance as now being God's prerogative. Or when they remit a person from owing them something like money or an apology. So what is forgiveness? In his classic work, Body of Divinity, and if everyone here does not have that in the library, I highly recommend it, Body of Divinity by Thomas Watson, here's what he says, quote, forgiveness is when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, when we grieve at their calamities, when we pray for them, when we seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them." End quote. This is a beautiful biblical answer to what forgiveness is, because Thomas Watson says, forgiveness is when we relinquish thoughts of revenge, Romans 12, 19, when we do not seek to do the other party evil, 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, when we actually wish to do them well, Luke 6, 28, when we grieve, at their calamities, Proverbs 24, 17, when we pray for them, Matthew 5, 44, and when we seek to reconcile with them when possible, mm -hmm. Romans 12, 18. So now we know, Romans 12, 18 was the last verse. So now we know what forgiveness is. Now let's talk about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not the absence of anger at sin. Forgiveness never approves or condones of sin. Neither does forgiveness ever compromise God's inerrant, infallible truth. Beloved, forgiveness is never forgetting. In fact, to biblically forgive, you have to remember. 
to biblically forgive, you have to remember something now cognizant that someone or an institution did something to someone. Now, in memory of that, you now make the conscious act of the will to remit or to release. It's not normal for human beings to forget, church. When people get older and they start forgetting, we call that a disease. It's called Alzheimer's dementia. And we begin giving people medication so that they will begin remembering again. My point is that, biblically speaking, when we talk about human nature, forgetting is never normal. Remembering is always normal. So forgiving is not forgetting, and in fact, you have to remember to forgive biblically. Now, forgiveness does not necessarily mean that everything is going to be the same. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean that things are going to go back to the way they were. Why? Because forgiveness, beloved, is one way. Reconciliation is two-way. Let's go back to our definition. The definition of forgiveness is when one party sends away, they remit. It only takes one individual to forgive someone else, but that's not the same as reconciliation. When both parties involved realize there's something going on and now there's an organic unity drawing them together, you, can, you cannot reconcile with one person. You actually need to have two or three or four parties who all seek reconciliation for it to be ideal. Now, church, you and I both know that the ideal is going to be forgiveness with reconciliation. But do we live in an ideal world? No. We live in a fallen world full of fallen, broken people. We are all fallen, broken individuals. So nothing is ever ideal. Nothing in the Christian life, unless you are Jesus Christ, is ever perfect. And here's what I mean by this. Cognizant that forgiveness is never going to be ideal or perfect. Forgiveness plays out differently in reality when dealing with someone who repents versus someone who does not. So in the ideal scenario, there is forgiveness plus reconciliation, Luke 17, 3 to 4. That is, the other person recognizes they were wrong, or you or I recognize that we were wrong. We say, I was wrong, and then we repent. Now, forgiveness flows freely. Now, what relationship in life does this type of paradigm always work in every single day? Marriage. You show me any marriage that stood the test of time, you know what the husband and wife are not doing? Keeping score. They're not saying, you did this, you did that. They both say, we're both broken. We are both fallen. They both say, honey, sweetie, I was wrong. No, I was wrong. Now there's genuine reconciliation because you have two parties involved. As Vodi Balcom always says, God did not give us marriage to make us happy. He gave us marriage to make us holy. <laughs> so the ideal is forgiveness plus reconciliation. Now let's think about this. You can forgive someone, 
but they may not actually think they did anything wrong. They may never confess. They may never repent. As a result, things can't, by definition, ever be the same. If I meet elder so-and-so, and elder so-and-so embezzled a million dollars from the church, and he says, I deserve this, guess who's never going to be in charge of church finances ever again? Elder so-and-so. Things can never be the same if it's only one-sided. So what I'm saying, church, is that we can forgive people who never confess. We can forgive people who never repent, but we have to be mindful. We don't have to trust them. There's a difference between forgiving someone and now actually trusting them in a genuine, intimate relationship if they don't confess and repent. Thomas Watson also says, quote, we are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him, end quote. So that's what forgiveness is. Now that we have our terms clearly defined, let's go back to our verses. Because I haven't answered the question yet. What is Jesus actually saying in Matthew 6, 14 to 15? Because when we take these verses literally on its surface, it seems to suggest that heavenly forgiveness, or God to us, is conditional on earthly forgiveness, us to other people. But there are two problems with this logic. Because if what God does is conditional on us, that makes God not God. Because God is sovereign. He never does anything conditional on us. And the sovereignty of God is a theme that runs all throughout the canon of Scripture. There's another problem. If we literally were to say that God will not forgive us, un give us unless we forgive someone else, this now minimizes and diminishes what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross that he made an atonement that was not only sufficient for all human beings, but also efficient for all of God's children. Scripture verses, 1 Peter 2.24, 1 John 1.7, Hebrews 9.12. For how could a mere creature refusing to forgive be more powerful than the atoning blood of Jesus Christ on the cross? So to now finally get an answer to our question, what is Jesus actually communicating in these verses? We don't have to speculate. We don't have to go anywhere else other than the Bible itself because Jesus does us the favor of expounding upon what he says here in Matthew 6, verses 14 to 15, in Matthew chapter 18. What happens there? What happens there is that the apostle Peter comes up to him and says to Jesus, Matthew 18, 21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times Seven. What does Jesus then do? He tells a parable. In the parable, you have a master 
He has a slave. The slave owes him 10,000 talents. Back then, that was a lot of money. So let's just make up a number that correlates. The slave owed him $10 billion. And you know what the master does? The master forgives him. You know what the slave now does? He turns around and he finds another guy who owes him 100 denarii, which wasn't that much money. Let's say it was $300. What does the slave who was forgiven, who was forgiven, what does he do? He chokes the man out and throws him in jail. Jesus then says, verse 35, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So now let's put this all together. Matthew 6, 14 to 15, Matthew 18, 21 to 35, and the Bible as a whole. When we let the whole interpret the part, what becomes crystal clear is that the willingness to forgive or person's ability to forgive someone else is not depicted as something that you or I do. It's depicted as a response to what God did. What happened in the parable? The slave in response to what his master did was unforgiving, meaning what? He regarded what the master did as worthless, as not valuable. So now, with his hardened heart, he did not forgive one of his brethren. But when we now, church, realize what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and he forgave us by laying down his life, and now God wiped out and canceled an infinite debt. That's 10 billion talents. It's a sum that you and I know is inconceivable. When we now respond to that and realize that God has justly forgiven us, what are we now free to do? Forgive. And that is now the forgiveness that we execute in response to what God has done that Jesus is talking about in our theme verses. At the end of the day, what Jesus communicates in Matthew 18 is that the slave regarded the forgiveness as so worthless that he had now merciless unforgiveness. But what God is calling us to do is realize that he has already forgiven us an infinite debt. Now here's my question. The next time you find yourself bitter, angry, or enraged when you don't want to forgive someone else. Here's a question to ask yourself. Who has more of a right to be angry? You at someone else or God because of your sin? You at someone else for something earthly or the high, heavenly, holy God of the universe who detests sin. When I heard the John MacArthur preach those words about a year ago, I was actually angry when I heard him preach that. The second he said those words, anger was gone. Because you now realize, beloved, when you are freely forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, that now sets you free 
to forgive. But even more than that, even when it hurts, even when we've been wrong and we freely forgive, of course it hurts. This is not a cold, indifferent theology. Who's the one who will strengthen us, comfort us, and uplift us when we do forgive? Our great high priest, Jesus Christ. So forgiveness is not so much a human act, rather it is a response to how God through Christ has freely forgiven his elect. A person can only freely forgive when they know they have been freely forgiven. By his grace, God frees his children to forgive, but the man who does not forgive is forsaken by God. So the principle Jesus is communicating in Matthew 6, 14 to 15, bring it now all home, is that forgiveness is not a tit-for-tat, one-for-one formula with God, but rather the person who responds to God's gracious gift with an overall attitude of forgiveness in life. That is a sign of someone who's genuinely redeemed because they have been forgiven and pardoned. Now, this evening was part one. Next week, I'm going to do part two, when we're going to talk about unforgiveness and how it's spiritual suicide, and then we're going to talk about forgiveness and the benefits of forgiveness in the Christian life. Because, as I just said, if the person who does not forgive is forsaken by God, here now is the question, then why is unforgiveness so popular? then why is forgiveness so unpopular? And here's a preview, because people actually believe the lie that unforgiveness is advantageous, but it's a diabolical, wretched lie, which only destroys the person who's not forgive. Amen, so more next week. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.